First of all, no one takes my advice, and in the spring, instead of setting the clocks ahead one hour, we set them back 23 hours and gain 23 hours of sleep. (laughs) Of course, I'm joking, but today's sermon topic is appropriate for Sleep Deprivation Sunday. Uh, The topic is suffering. And, uh, you know... um, I definitely suffer (laughs) when I lose that hour of sleep, Uh, but there are more serious forms of suffering. Uh, Today also marks our last sermon in the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth has been a story of loving kindness, but uh, behind that, it's a story of suffering. I know that Ruth is the title character, it's called the book of Ruth, and that she and Boaz have the most screen time. But I would argue that the main character is really Naomi. Uh, The book starts with Naomi's story before we even meet Ruth, and the last scene is, uh, it zooms in on Naomi, this old woman who has suffered so much and now holds her redemption in her arms. Well, suffering is part of life under the curse, under the fall. And it's even still a part of the Christian life. We're often faced with questions about suffering, whether those questions come as attacks on the faith from outside or they come from inside our own hearts as as doubts. Why do we suffer? On one level, the Bible gives us plenty of answers for why suffering happens. We suffer because of original sin, Adam rejected God's command, and as a result, death came into the world. And not only death, but work has become futile. The the ground that uh, was created to produce food now also produces thorns and uh, where it should bring nourishment. Childbirth is painful. Things that should bring joy are intimately tied to suffering. And this is simply the reality of living in a fallen world. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. The book of Proverbs shows us how living in foolish ways often results in painful consequences. Of course, we also have the book of Ecclesiastes to remind us that it doesn't always work that way. Uh, Sometimes we do good and still suffer. Sometimes we do wrong and we get away with it for now. But because God's commands are for our good... We shouldn't be surprised if our disobedience brings painful consequences in this life. Of course, our disobedience also brings pain to others, and vice versa. We sometimes suffer because of the sins of others. Think about it. The first two children to be born to Adam and Eve grew up to be the first murderer and the first murder victim. In in our day, because of the political debates of the day, the language of oppressor and oppressed is uncomfortable to us, but it's language that you find in Scripture. You can't get through the book of Psalms without overhearing the prayers of one who is oppressed by others, though he has done nothing to them to deserve such treatment. In big and small ways, in personal relationships, and in society as a whole, people suffer at the hands of others. We might also remember that in addition to human beings, we have supernatural enemies at work in the world as well. We also suffer because of righteousness. Christ suffered because the world hated him. 
because he brought sin to light. The only truly innocent man to walk the earth was crucified by sinful men and for sinful men. Should we who are sinners expect to be treated better? Jesus warned us that the world hated him, so it will hate us. And Paul, the apostle, longed to know Christ in his sufferings and taught us to rejoice as we suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with him. We also know that suffering is sometimes used by God, not to condemn, but to discipline. Trials give us an opportunity to believe God's promises and grow in our faith. Testing produces steadfastness, and the full effect of steadfastness is that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, as we just heard recently from the book of James. Those are good answers to the question of of the purpose of suffering, but they don't answer all of our questions, do they? And we don't want to just know why suffering is a thing that exists in the world. We usually want to know why this suffering, why now, why me, why did God take him away? Why did God allow someone to do that to me? Why am I going through this? What is God thinking? How can this be part of his plan? How can these things possibly work together for anyone's good? And we want answers so badly we can fall prey to anyone promising an easy answer. This is why the so-called prosperity gospel attracts so many people. By that, I mean the idea that if you just believe, if you just have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. You can avoid suffering. Therefore, suffering happens because you didn't have enough faith. People make a fortune selling others the promise that they can avoid suffering in this life. It's theological snake oil. Godly and faithful men from Abraham to the prophets, from Christ to his apostles, all suffered. The would-be cure is worse than the disease. Not only are you suffering, but it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. Sometimes, uh, even we who would reject that as false teaching can still be like Job's comforters, looking for answers in the fault of the sufferer. Maybe it's because we don't want to live in a world where the horrors that we see happen to others could happen to us or to our children. We want to be in control of what happens to us. So we decide this happened to them because they did that. And we don't do things like that. We follow wise rules and principles. So it could never happen to us. And if we're not careful, we build a system of righteousness that we trust in to insulate ourselves from suffering. It's the same fundamental error as the prosperity gospel, except it's based on works rather than faith. I think the ceaseless quest to connect current events to some kind of end times prophecy can also be an attempt to answer why are these things happening. We're uncomfortable with the suffering that we see in the world. We don't like the idea that this is just how life is under the curse. Diseases and wars and natural disasters, they're not abnormal. They've been going on for millennia. But it's attractive to think that maybe the suffering in our day is something special. It has some significance that we can learn. It's an attempt to find a reason why these things are happening. And despite the fact that history is littered with doomsday prophets who turned out to be wrong, doomsday prophets can still gain a following today, not because our day is so different, but because we are the same. We still want so desperately to know, why is all this happening? The book of Job is the most prominent book in Scripture that wrestles with the question. 
You remember the, the man Job lost everything, all his wealth and all his children, and you'll recall that uh, his friends grieved him further by uh, applying some correction, essentially blaming him for the nightmare that he lived through, was still living. And God ends up answering Job, not with a detailed explanation of the mysteries of inscrutable providence, but with a profound vision of the transcendent majesty of God Almighty. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, he asks Job. The message is clear. God is beyond us. His ways are beyond us. His governance of his creation is incomprehensible to our tiny minds. He is God. He's not some cosmic shift manager and we his customers who are always right. He's God and we are his creatures. He does not owe us an answer or an explanation. We could not grasp his mind if he were to reveal it to us. And Job sees this glory of God and is satisfied, not just frightened into submission, but satisfied. He says, I heard reports about you, but now I see you. Naomi, as a character, is kind of similar to Job. She loses everything. She's bitter and she is hopeless. But God shows up and answers her bitter hopelessness. As with Job, God answers Naomi, not with an explanation of his plan, but with a revelation of his character. I haven't gotten to today's text, but before I finally get there... Uh, let's pause and remember how the story began. There was a famine in Israel, and Naomi, with her husband Elimelech and their two sons, were forced to move to a foreign land to find food. And we aren't explicitly told why the famine happened. Uh, We can guess, under the Old Covenant, it's probably a judgment for Israel's sin as a nation, especially if this happened during the time of the judges. We know that they kept sinning and sinning in the time of the judges, but The narrator doesn't spell this out for us, doesn't connect the famine or the need to move to any sins by Elimelech and his his family, or Naomi. So we wonder why they had to leave. We wonder why others were able to stay. Apparently it hit Elimelech and Naomi harder. And we see suffering that we don't have answers for. And as you may remember, the story gets worse because Naomi's husband and their two sons all die. Why? There's more suffering, the loss of a husband, the loss of both sons, pain that I can't begin to imagine. The two sons had been married, and and one of their widows, Ruth, insists on going back to Israel with Naomi. And it's easy for us to think that Naomi ought to be thankful that she has somebody with her. She laments, you know, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And we want to say, well, what about Ruth? What is she, chopped liver? Uh, But of course, we know how important Ruth is for the story because, you know, we just read the title and it says Ruth. But to Naomi in that moment, there's no way having Ruth can make up for all that she's lost. And I wonder if Naomi may have felt even guilty for what happened to Ruth and for dragging Ruth into her own suffering. Back in chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, 
reads thus, Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I get the impression from that statement that Naomi isn't just lost in self-centered self-pity, but she's thinking of her daughters-in-law, and that makes it only more bitter for her. They've suffered loss as well. She can't help them. Well, if you've been here the past few weeks, you know the rest of the story. Ruth goes to find food and meets Boaz, a relative of the deceased Elimelech, who can be a new husband to Ruth, a redeemer. And long story short, that's what he becomes. And since we're tempted to read this as a modern love story, we're tempted to see last week's text uh, when she marries Boaz as the, the, the climax of the story. The good guy gets the girl. That's how all our feel-good movies end. But that's not the full resolution of the story, because the story, as I'm contending, is about Naomi. And so the story reaches its climax, I'll argue, in today's text, which is Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. In your pew Bible, you find it on page something or other, 220-something, I think. Last one was on 222, so that's a good place to start. So Ruth 4, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. If you were here uh, this past December and remember our Advent series, you'll remember how we went through a series on miraculous births. There are several of these in Scripture where women who are old or otherwise infertile miraculously conceive and bear children. Sarah has Isaac, Hannah has Samuel, the wife of Manoah had Samson, Elizabeth has John the Baptist. Of course, Mary as Jesus. The book of Ruth is a kind of miraculous birth story. It's not miraculous in the sense of a, a 90-year-old woman or a virgin giving birth. The laws of biology are not superseded by divine intervention. But think about what has happened. 
In chapter 1, the passage I read, Naomi despairs that her sons were gone. She's too old for another husband, probably too old to have more children, even if she had a husband. She says there are no, there's no sons in her womb. But now the women proclaim, in verse 17 of today's text, a son has been born to Naomi. Do you see how God reversed the situation for Naomi? She was empty. Her sons and husband gone, but now we see her snuggling a newborn baby, surrounded by friends, rejoicing with her. She is full again. God has worked to restore and redeem Naomi through the ordinary means of Ruth and Boaz. It may not be biologically miraculous, but it's unimaginable. The women recognize this as God's work. Blessed be the Lord, they cry. He's not left you without a redeemer. God has done what Naomi thought was impossible. He gave her another son. Now the lesson here is not that God always gives back whatever he takes away. The child Naomi is holding is a blessing from God. But he can't replace the sons or the husband that she lost, right? He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of old age, but he cannot raise the dead. Naomi is comforted, rejoices, but I can't imagine her saying, okay, you know, I see what God was doing now. Uh, what I've been through is so worth it. I'm so glad my whole family died. I definitely choose to live through that all over again. If you think about it, we're still left with questions. We, we start to see how God is working uh, through the genealogy of King David, and we know from the perspective of the gospel that this is how Christ comes. Does that really explain it all? Uh, couldn't Ruth's dead first husband just as easily have been King David's great-grandfather if he'd lived? Does this really answer, explain why he died? Well, as with Job, God doesn't answer all our questions. But here's one thing that I do know. It's that God chooses people no one else sees. God works in and through those who suffer. Looking back at some verses that I skipped last week, uh, if you look at verses 11 and 12, Ruth is compared to a woman named Tamar. Uh, do you remember the story of Judah and Tamar? It's not rated G. Uh, you may look it up on your own. It's in Genesis but like Ruth, Tamar was a widowed daughter-in-law of an Israelite. Except where Ruth showed kindness to her mother-in-law, Tamar was re rejected, neglected by her father-in-law, Judah. She marries one of Judah's sons, and he's wicked, so God kills him. Judah gives her the next son, who also will just say he's wicked, and God kills him. And Judah... Um, sensing a pattern, perhaps, decides not to give her the next son, uh, as would have been required in this kinsman-redeemer concept we've been, been talking about. So Tamar, uh, she exercises some creativity in order to become pregnant and preserve the family line. And she gives birth to twins, one of whom is Perez, and the descendants of Perez end up being the most prominent clan in the tribe of Judah, uh, the clan through whom King David would come and later the Messiah. And the, the mention of Tamar is interesting to me because 
She's also mentioned uh, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, ancient genealogies usually just include the fathers, so it's, it's unusual. Uh, but there are four women who are included in the uh, genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And all four of them have some connection to Ruth chapter 4. There's Tamar, who I just mentioned. There's also Rahab, who Matthew 1, 5 tells us is the mother of Boaz. So one of the characters uh, is his mother. Uh, is, is in the genealogy as well. There's, of course, Ruth, and there's also Bathsheba, the, the wife of the murdered Uriah the Hittite, who, with David, the culmination of this genealogy, uh, ends up fathering Solomon. None of these women had enviable lives. There are two young widows, a Canaanite prostitute, a woman who is taken by her husband's murderer. I don't know why any of those things happened to them. I do know that these things are written to show us that God works through broken people. Why does God work through broken people? I can list a few reasons. For one thing, God works through broken people because that's the only kind of people there are. Under sin, under the curse, we're all sick. Jesus came and said, those who are well have no need of a physician. So that's all of us. We are sick. But Jesus still chose to minister to those who were clearly sinners, clearly outcasts, clearly suffering. And even his own disciples had a hard time with this. Do you remember the story in John chapter 9 where there's a a man there who's born blind and his disciples ask him, you, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They saw someone who was suffering and drew the knee-jerk reaction that it's his own fault or his parents' fault. But do you remember what Jesus said? He said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. And then he healed him. It shouldn't have surprised anyone. Uh, Psalm 34 says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Why would Jesus go anywhere else? And Jesus came preaching a different kind of kingdom. He said things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. What about those who have it all together? Can a rich man be saved? Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? With God, all things are possible. Paul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, living a good life, advancing in Judaism beyond his kinsmen, he says. But Jesus met him and saved him. But here's what Paul himself would later write. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts, boast in the Lord. This is ultimately why God works in the lowly and the downtrodden, 
not because he's a liberal or a Marxist or never read Ayn Rand, but to reveal his glory. He chooses the weak and the foolish to show that power and wisdom belong to him alone. And he cares for the suffering to show that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That is what Naomi experienced. She was poor in spirit, but the kingdom of God came through her. Through her life, the line of the Messiah continued. She mourned, but she was comforted. The work of God was displayed in her life. Job's suffering was answered by a vision of God's transcendence. He came to see that God's power, God's plan, God's providence are beyond our comprehension. Naomi's suffering was answered by a vision of God's grace. She came to see that God's love and kindness are also beyond our comprehension. And that brings us to the ultimate answer to suffering. Look at verse 14 again. It says, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. You might think that this verse is about Boaz, because Boaz has been the Redeemer that the book has been talking about up to this point. But not here. Look at the next verse. He, the Redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him, the Redeemer. The Redeemer is Obed. The Redeemer is the child born in Bethlehem. As we've said already, Obed grows up to become the grandfather of King David, and through his line, the greater son of David comes, the Redeemer, Christ Jesus, is born in Bethlehem. What Naomi saw, what she held in her arms, was a shadow of the grace yet to be fully revealed in the incarnation of the Son of God. And that is grace that is beyond our imagining. That God the Son would take on frail human nature and enter the world as a a tiny infant born in Bethlehem. That he who enjoyed from eternity past, the unblinking joy of glory would take on a fragile human body and a vulnerable human heart. We don't even know how the incarnation works. We can't imagine how he can be fully God and fully human at the same time. But we also don't know why he would choose to do such a thing, that impassable and unchanging God would become a man of sorrows and make himself acquainted with grief. He entered our brokenness and became the suffering servant. He did this by his own gracious will to be our redeemer, to pay the price. Suffering came into our lives because of sin, whether Adam's or ours or someone else's, and Christ came to deal with sin by enduring the full force of its consequences. He took the curse on himself as the crown of thorns pierced his flesh. 
He took on all the pain and all the penalty that we deserve. He bled and died to reconcile us to God, to reconcile all things to God, to make the world new and right and just and good. Nowhere is the kindness of God more clearly shown than in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, our crucified Redeemer. In the incarnation, God the Son made our problems his problem, our pain his pain. He made our suffering his suffering. He didn't just come telling us about God's mercy. He showed us mercy. As God's plan is beyond our comprehension, so also his love for us is beyond our comprehension. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So we are often tempted to believe that there is no way we can ever recover because we can't see a way. But God can see and accomplish what we can't see. He himself promised to wipe away every tear from the eyes of those he loves. And he himself learned to shed tears and sweat blood in order to pay the price to wipe away those tears. He will do it. When we can't understand how this could work for our good or his glory, we can trust that he can do us exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. We don't have all the answers, but we have the loving presence of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. It's nothing is beyond you. You stand beyond the reach of our vain imaginations, our misguided piety. The heavens stretch out to hold you and deep cries out to deep, singing that nothing is beyond you. Time cannot contain you. You fill eternity. Sin can never stain you. Death has lost its sting and I cannot explain the way you came to love me except to say that nothing is beyond you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, as Rich Mullen said in the song I quoted, nothing is beyond you, that your, your plan and the way that you work in the world is beyond our comprehension, but also your love for us is beyond our comprehension, and we, even in our sinfulness, are not beyond your love and your grace and your power to redeem. And we, in our suffering and in our pain, are not beyond your grace and your power to heal and to comfort and to lead all the way home. We thank you that you are our God and our Father, that you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Lord, we don't understand some of the things that have happened to us, and we understand that we may face things still yet um, that will tempt us to doubt and to despair. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you.
And we trust that as we share in the sufferings of Christ, we may share also abundantly in the comfort of Christ as well. We ask that you would show your grace to those who are hurting this morning, that they may feel even now your presence, your hand upon them. Help our hearts, our broken hearts, to trust in the heart of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Help us to believe that you are with us, that you walk with us every step of the way, and help us as a church to follow in the footsteps of Christ. As you are near to the brokenhearted, help us to be near as well. And as you saw the suffering of the man born blind, and said that neither he nor his parents sinned, but the reason for his suffering is that the work of God may be done in him. May we see those who suffer around us, and may we do the work of God in their lives as well, as you do your work in our lives. Be glorified in us as we trust in you, and as you Empower us to be satisfied in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.